Um, I'll get you to pop a picture up on the on the screen. Uh, that's the one over there. Sorry, yeah. So I was uh, standing there with my lovely daughter and a friend of mine, <clears throat> and this friend of mine was from the Brahmin caste, so top of the tree, and he'd grown up watching his mum bathe his father's feet every day in the morning. Uh, and with that plastic basin of foot-washed water, that was her allocation of drinking water for that day. So this friend of mine every day saw this ritual go on and on and on as he, as he grew. And uh, deeply impactful. He was also a spy, a communist spy. And his role as a communist spy was to infiltrate churches like this, in this particular context, which I'll keep intentionally vague. Uh, he would infiltrate churches, he would do all the clapping and the, you know, all of that sort of stuff, and he would sing and learn the words, and he would feed back what was happening in this particular context uh, to his leadership. And then one day he went inside this rather large church and um, the chap preaching preached on Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And you can understand the impact that that had on my friend after watching uh, his mum wash his dad's feet all those years. And he thought to himself, he thought, what sort of a God washes the feet of humanity? And he gave his heart, his soul, his strength, everything he had to Jesus on that morning, right there as a communist spy in the middle of a church. And stuff changed for him, in particular, how he viewed the plight of young girls and young women that were stolen from his context and sent all across the world as part of human trafficking and the consequences that were associated with that. And he decided that he would go into the villages, and this is what uh, led us to this tree, and run some programs to try and help educate uh, young women, girls and their mums about the tricks and the traps, traps of, um, of trafficking. And he said to me, and just on the other side you can see a little bit of a valley there, he said, come over here, Linz, and my daughter Alexandra was there. And we looked over the valley and he said, can you see all the tin roofs on the, on the hillsides? And yeah, for sure, yep. And the sun was setting and the light was bouncing off and there was a lot of tin roofs. And he said, Linz, you know that in, you know, 2000 and whatever, there was an earthquake here and all these homes were destroyed. And the traffickers came in after that and said to the people in the home, parents in the home, if you give us your daughter we will give you a tin roof. And he said, Linz, do you see the tin roofs? It was unbearable. I mean, even that, I'm standing there with my daughter. And there's hundreds and hundreds of tin roofs shining in the sun. And I remember we left here and we jumped in the Jeep and, and this friend of mine turned around, put his arm up on the thing and in about 10 minutes told us 
the sorts of things that happen to young girls uh, when they get trafficked. I'm not going to go into all the details, but they're talking skin harvesting of young girls from cages. They're talking of taking girls to the border and harvesting organs and all sorts of... tip of the iceberg. But all sorts of horrendous things like that. And I said to him in that car trip, what's driving this? What's, what's, you know, what's the engine for, for this? I've got no reference point here. I, I can't understand what's happening. He said, I can see that. He said, the thing that's driving this is because in our context, there's a worldview that says women are even lower than property. Property is of some use. Young girls in our context, Lynn's, are a burden. And if someone comes in and can say, look, we'll give you a tin roof and relieve that burden, blows my mind. If you were to tap on the shoulder of one of these young girls and say, look, hey, thinking about your life as a whole right now, how worthwhile do you feel? Can I tell you that feeling worthwhile as a, as a, as a person drives peace of mind. We'll unpack this a little bit. But way down deep, this thing is so deep, it is so vital, it is so integral to peace of mind, feeling worthwhile as a person. Now, you don't need to go to this context to bump into people that aren't obviously feeling very worthwhile. Back where I'm from, where Michelle and I used to run some programs uh, in a high school together 50 billion years ago. Um, yeah, I was tracking the peace of mind, the well-being, the contentment, the satisfaction, all those things essentially mean the same thing, of a group of year sevens, and then the next year, year eights, and then some year nines. And we'd come to year nine, and there was an enormous number of the year nine cohort that woke up in the morning and did not feel worthwhile as people. So I was just reporting this to the school. 145 staff, school leadership, principal puts a hand up. <laughs> and she goes, that's amazing, Linz. It's amazing. I said, okay. She said, it's incredible. After this, we've got a, a, a meeting of the year nine staff to try and address and redress some of these behavioural issues that we're seeing in the year nine cohort. And now you're telling us, you know, this is giving us sort of a framework to understand maybe what's driving some of the behaviour. What do you reckon we should do, Linz? I said, I have no idea. I've got no idea at all. I'm not a teacher. I'm just your numbers guy. I'm just telling you they're there. And then my one moment of genius I've ever had just happened right then. I said, I, obviously, you've got to address the behavioural stuff. Your teachers, you've got to, you know, understand that. But when you think of a strategy to respond to what's happening, you know, put a pair of glasses on and, and see those Year 9 students as people who wake up in the morning, every morning, and do not feel worthwhile as people. That was it. That was my one contribution. And you could have heard a pin drop. Feeling worthwhile as people. 
You don't need to go to this context to bump into people who don't. You can go to our school that we've worked in. You bump into a whole lot of year nines that don't. And I would imagine that, honestly, if I was to, you know, walk around here and ask you a question, hey, thinking about your life as a whole, how worthwhile do you feel? Like, ten being, ah, oh, I just couldn't squeeze any more worthwhileness. That's how worthwhile I feel. And zero being, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've got nothing of what you say. You know, where would you be? There will be people here. I'm telling you. Oh, maybe a four. There will be people in here in more trouble than the early settlers when it comes to answering that question that is so deep, it's so precious, it's so important how worthwhile you feel as a person because it drives all sorts of stuff, and we'll talk about that. So I want to dig into that. I want to give you some stuff this morning, um, under-the-bonnet stuff, if I can. You're not going to find this very easily. I'm just going to sort of wrap it up as just plain speak as I possibly can. I'm going to give it to you, so that if you're one of those people that's saying, you know what, I'm not really feeling terribly worthwhile as a person, okay, you can unpack this stuff and maybe you know, do something about that with God's help. Or if you know somebody, if you love somebody, somebody really close to you that is going, you know what, I'm not feeling very worthwhile and you want to make a difference in their life, I know you do, then I think that some of these things will help. You probably need to scribble some notes maybe or, or whatever. So let's, let's start um, with Philippians chapter 4 and, and we'll try and unpack this and, and we'll land it <coughs> um, in a good spot, I hope. So Philippians chapter 4, and just sort of into verse 11 there, it's Paul speaking, and he says, I've learned, and some translations have got the secret of being content in any and every situation. doesn't matter what life throws at me, I've learned the secret, or I've learned to be content. Now, there's a little cluster of words that all mean essentially the same thing. Content, satisfaction, peace... They're all clustered really close together. If we were to map these on some sort of feelings chart, they're all mapped really closely together. And we're talking about peace of mind, contentment, satisfaction. Paul has, has learned something that no matter what gets thrown at him, this thing's just rock solid. That'd be good. Now, I also work with the Australian Centre on Quality of Life um, and an international wellbeing group. Now, we've discovered something amazing. We've discovered what something Paul isn't saying here. He is not saying that the level of his contentment, satisfaction, peace of mind is, is greater than anybody else's. What? He's not saying that. How do I know? Because we've been measuring peace of mind, contentment, satisfaction in the Australian context right across the whole population for decades. We've been measuring the contentment, peace of mind, satisfaction in life with people all across the world for decades. And we've discovered an amazing thing. It's all the same. And what we've decided is that as human beings, on average... We have a hardwired DNA set level of peace of mind, contentment, satisfaction with life. It's mildly positive and it generates this thing we know and call motivation for life. And we're all, it's all set. Paul's not saying, well, mine's like off the charts. It's set 
Here's the difference, though. Paul is saying that the things that protect that, peace of mind, satisfaction with life, whatever it is, contentment, the things that I have that protect that are very robust and resilient. Very robust and resilient. So no matter what life throws at me, my peace of mind, my level of contentment, satisfaction with life is just rock solid because I've got muscle on these things that protect it. Here they are. I'm going to give them to you in a list. Some are intuitive. Relationships with other people are things that protect our peace of mind, satisfaction with life, levels of contentment. I'm going to list them just quickly. Relationships with other people, a sense of achieving in life, a sense of purpose in life. Now, again, I want you to be hearing these things, not just, oh, these are good things for me to remember, you know, or maybe my peace of mind, you know, is sort of out of its, you know, set, set level, and, okay, if I work on, um, you know, building some personal relationships. But you've got people you love around you as well. So this, this stuff can be creatively put into their life and their space as well, achieving in life. So Ken, I've mentioned that the other place, Ken told me of an amazing feat. Ken told me that he rode from Perth to Sydney. He's coming across down the Blue Mountains and he pulls up a park bench after that enormous ride. He probably could see the Harbour Bridge. I'm just hyperbolising. And he sits there and just has this incredible experience, emotional experience of achievement sense of achieving in life. This thing protects our satisfaction for life, contentment, so on and so forth. Optimism is another one. When I think about the future, I feel optimistic. Um, perceived control. There's only this one and one more. Perceived control. Perceived control is when I get up in the morning, I feel I've got just enough control to do the sorts of things that I want to do today. If you're in an abusive relationship, you don't have that big trouble. I get up, I get enough control in my world to say I can do the sorts of things that I, that I want to do today. Here's the last one. Feeling worthwhile as a person. This is a big ticket item amongst those. This is a big ticket item. This is way down deep. And these are the things, remember, these are the, you know, what, however many things that are protecting our peace of mind, our contentment, our satisfaction with life. These things are sort of engaged to protect it. And this worthwhile, feeling worthwhile, is fundamentally important as a protective device. And if it gets damaged, which it is for some of you here, for some people you know and love, it is not where it ought to be. I can take you to a school and a year nine cohort has got a whole bunch of kids getting up in the morning going, you know what, I'm just a scum-sucking pig. I don't feel worthwhile at all. So what, I've got behavioural issues? Of course. So they're the things that protect it. Now, there's things that will come and threaten each of those. I'll just go through some examples. Obviously, COVID. I was tracking some VCE students during the second, remember the second lockdown of COVID? First one, we're all like, wow, this is actually not too bad. This is, I could, you know, go for a walk in work hours and get a latte at the coffee shop, you know, through the hole in the wall. While I'm working, this is, was sort of a novelty. Then the second one, four million years in Melbourne, we were locked down in 2020 for that second lockdown. And we tracked VCE students and their you know, peace of mind, their contentment, and their perceived control during that. Now, any population that we've measured anywhere, so this would be a population, Australia, obviously a population, anywhere in the world, it's 4.4% of that population that are in porridge when it comes to how worthwhile they feel as people. 
how much perceived control they have, how much peace of mind. 4.4% really working very hard. During that COVID, that second lockdown, in the VCE cohorts that we were fought, 12, it went from 4.4% to 12 point something or other percent. So COVID's a threat for obviously reasons. Trafficking is a, just think about this. What I've given you, this is, I'm telling you it's rocket fuel. You don't know what this is, this is rocket fuel. You will find you would spend 10, 15 years trying to uncover those things that I've just listed for you as rocket fuel. Think of what trafficking does to your personal relationships. How satisfied are you with the people and friends around you as an eight-year-old girl in a cage being sexually abused? Like it just, it just doesn't damage it. It just ruins it entirely. Achieving in life. How much purpose do you feel that you have in life? Like, do you see how terrible this stuff is? Optimism and hope. Think about your future, how sort of optimistic you're feeling. There's about one, less than 1% of anyone that's trafficked that ever finds their way back home. You know, how optimistic about the future are you? Perceived control. Think about your life as a whole. How much control do you feel you have? I mean, these, it's not just you know, eroded, it's washed away. It's gone. And then the big one. Uh, excuse me, I just sort of threw the bars of the cage. Just a quick, quick question. Think about your life as a whole. How worthwhile do you feel? Like, shut up. This is terrible. Incidentally, you used to mention we're going, we're going to visit... You know, this, this place, you can come trekking with me. I'll take you to the Himalaya, look at Mount Everest, and we'll do something about this. Free plug, sorry, Dave. But again, you don't need to be in a, you know, a school context or you know, this sort of context, abusive context. Now, this popped up during COVID, didn't it, because of proximity. If you're in an abusive relationship, if there's something going on that's really nasty and horrible there, obviously these sorts of things are impacted. Again, like I said before, perceived control. How much control do you feel you've got in your, in your life in the midst of a, an abusive relationship? Well, that's not really working very well. Um, optimism, hope for the future, it just seems trapped. You know, oh, and the big one, of course, how worthwhile do you feel as a person? So the leafy suburb where Michelle and I grew up, we did a research um, thing there. We asked people about their peace of mind, their contentment with life, so on and so forth. And we asked a specific subgroup of people, people who are caring for elderly parents or for children with mental health sort of challenges, adult carers, like volunteer. Just in my life, I'm a carer. I'm really a full-time carer. And we measured these things. Do you know that it was lower? And I work with people amongst, affected by leprosy in India and Nepal who, because of stigmatism, thrown out onto the street and disregarded. Their levels were higher than the people of the leafy suburb of Nilimbik. Michelle, do you believe that when it comes to this? Again, how could that be? Because of all of those things that protect their peace of mind, that protect their satisfaction with life and their contentment, those sorts of things being dismantled in all sorts of ways. So if we want to put it back, obviously we've got to find something that impacts positively those things. You can find them for yourself. You can creatively find them for your children. I'm going to give you a big ticket item in a minute. Incidentally, does the gospel impact those protective devices? Like, it's not a trick question. 
Does the gospel impact our relationships with other people? I was saying, it doesn't matter where I go, whether it's the Bendigo Baps and the old thing, here or another church somewhere else, I'm at home. There's something about the body of Christ. The relationships with other people in the body of Christ. This is an incredibly powerful protective mechanism. Oh, even if I'm by myself. You know, in all my pastoring, you've probably bumped into it too. When people are really working hard, when there's a lot of grief, a lot of difficulty, there doesn't seem to be healing or there doesn't seem to be that. Do you know the thing that always makes a difference? It is the presence of Christ. It is walking through whatever it is. I don't care if there's anybody else around me. If I can just catch sight of Jesus walking through that with me. And he's always there. I mean, the gospel does impact this really important you know, relationships with other people. It's a protective device. Does the gospel impact achieving in life and purpose? That proverb that says, for many of them, plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. So I get up every morning as a member of the body of Christ, and I go, okay, what am I going to do today? What do you want me to do, boss? Build my kingdom. Whew. Not a bad job description. You catch me at lunchtime going, you know, you're doing some good stuff today, Linz. I'm building God's kingdom. That's all right. You're achieving stuff. I'm building God's kingdom. I mean, this is, this is entirely important and very appropriate. God's got no hands and feet. You know this. Other than yours, he wants to build the kingdom. He uses you and he uses me. So it's a sense of achieving and per optimism. I have read the very last page of this book and we are on the winning team. I can think about the future and be optimistic. I really can. What about the other one? Perceived control. Tucked away in the pages of my Bible anyway, I can read about a sovereign God. Do I have control in the world? A sovereign God does. I was saying at the other place that, you know, a lecturer, Keith Hinton, I don't know if anyone's ever bumped into Keith Hinton, I had him at Bible College of Victoria, and he goes, right, class, tell me, why was the book of Revelation written? Oh, my gosh, couldn't we start with something a little easier than that? It's like dragons and oogity-boogity stuff, and like, I don't, no idea. He said, it's easy, it's easy. People would open their blinds of the house and get up in the morning, make a cup of tea, a cup, a cup of coffee, pull the blind up and look out the window and it was chaos. It just looked like evil was ruling. It was like Satan was in charge. Satan was somehow sovereign over the world. And the book of Revelation simply written to say, no, God is in control. So when it comes to my perceived control in this world, this very important protective life. I ask the question, does the gospel make a difference? Absolutely it makes a difference. Is it a sovereign God? Last one, how worthwhile do I feel as a person? Should the gospel make a difference? You've got a giant cross on the top of this building. You can see it from space. There's a bigger one there. Work. I go to work, it's always early and it's dark. And St. Gregory's the Great is the Catholic school there. They've got this whopping steel cross that's lit up catch sight of it every time it reminds me you would not die for something you didn't value that's why you to mention we go into a school and we use a stupid $50 note we say hey anyone want a $50 note oh yeah yeah I'll have that $50 note well, hang on back off what if I like chew on it for a while 
you know. <laughs> and I say, the kids go, yeah, 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 I'll still have it. <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 I'll use gloves, whatever, I'll wash it. What if it's in the mud, it's squashed or it's damaged or beaten up or whatever it is? And I, you, get the, you get the gist. It's got intrinsic value. We're image bearers. The gospel does make a difference on how we perceive whether we're worthwhile or not. Not the least the cross. Now, here's the question, though. Well, it's not really a question, it's a statement. We know this stuff. We know it. But how do, how do we make it? How do we get it to sort of get some traction? How do we get it to get some traction? Because what happens when stuff tears away at some of these things that I've mentioned that protect our peace of mind? When stuff of life or whatever it is starts to tear away, we end up reflecting the, the ache that God's people did all the way back in Isaiah. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. I didn't give text to look up here. If you've got it on your phone, it's worth a, worth a quick look. Isaiah chapter 40. The talk hasn't just started. I'm bringing this bad boy home, so don't burst into tears around the room going, oh, my goodness me. I thought we were nearly finishing. He's just starting to open the Bible. It'll be quick. Your roast won't burn or anything like that. So Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27. I love this text. I love it because it's just honest. Now, when stuff doesn't seem to work that well for us as Christian folks, we start to pray. And sometimes it feels like the prayers are like the old ricochet rabbit just bouncing around the room. And we start to, whether we say it out loud or not, I don't know, but sometimes we start to think these sorts of things. Verse 20, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel? Here it is, two things. My way is hidden from the Lord. You can't even see what's going on. I've been praying for my daughter for this long, and it's like you can't even, you can't even see what's happening. I mean, you're not doing anything. And I'm praying my guts out. I've worn a hole in the back of the prayer cave with the stuff that seems to be bad. It's just honest. My, my way is hidden from the Lord. It's, oh, hang on, hang on. We heard from Benigo Baps that sovereign God. He's all powerful. Well, maybe, he, all right, he does see me. Well, hang on. He's still not doing anything. Maybe he doesn't care. This is the second bit. Well, all right, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is being disregarded by my God. If you can see me, all-powerful God, and I've been you know, aching over this proper thing for so long and still nothing, well, then maybe you don't care. Now, I like this because it's just honest. It's just honest. Nothing worse than chewing gum, blowing bubbles. Oh, it's all good, it's all good. This is just being honest. It feels like God can't even see me, and if he does, well, he doesn't do anything. So maybe he doesn't care. And Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through to 55, Deuteronomy Isaiah, is really the story of the prophet addressing God's people who are in this really hard, aching place. And I'll just give you a snapshot, two verses that encapsulates the whole of chapter 40 to 55's response to that ache. And verse 11, all time my favourite verse. Verse 10. See the sovereign Lord comes with... This is a prophet's reply to the ache. Apparently, Yahweh seems to be defeated or, you know, he can't see us. He's not, is he that powerful? The prophet says here, and he says it all sorts of different ways. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. 30 kilos ago, I was a competitive cyclist. 
And if you said, are you strong winds? I might have shown you my calf muscle, but we don't tend to do that. We go, you're tough, you're strong. We, you know, kids in the school, yeah, look, check it out. My young bloke, he's bodybuilding, check it out. Like they're, they're bigger than my legs. You show that. This, this what the, his mighty arm. God is a powerful God. This is what the prophet's saying. So the first part of the eight, doesn't he see us? He's a powerful God. Look at verse 11. The same powerful God. This is my all-time favorite verse. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. This, this arm like this, this mighty God. Such a, a contrast now, a picture of such gentleness and love. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and even, even more. He gathers them and carries them close to his heart. In other words, the prophet is saying that God is a powerful God and you are worthwhile. He loves you no matter what the circumstances of life. And then just for us who are parents, grandparents, Aussie gold. He gently leads those who have young. You want to hang on to that one. Gently leads those who have young. So how do we... How do we get traction on this? We need to know, don't we, that God is a powerful God and that he does love us. But I still, how do I jam that out of my head, into my heart? I only know one way as a pastor of a church after 22 years and another 450 years of doing other ministry. It's to respond to a simple but profound invitation. It's in Matthew chapter 11, worth a quick look. You'll know it really well. If I could distill all the sorts of things that I've learnt with the Australian Centre on Quality of Life and the things that protect our peace of mind and contentment and, and, and mental health and all these sorts of things that protect us as followers of Jesus when the ache starts. If I could leave you with one thing the, the one thing that always seems to work this is it we sung about it in the new song it's responding to this simple invitation it was like 2000 and whatever years ago it was given but it's here again this morning at Bendigo Baptist Church it's, it's here like it was just given back then come to me Jesus says all who are weary and burdened just put whatever you want in there. All who think you're a scum-sucking pig. All who think, oh, I'm not a worthwhile person, come to me. All who think that, you know, there's no power in this world to change my circumstances, come to me. All who think that there is no one that loves you, that thinks you are worthwhile, come to me. And I will give you rest. Well, it's not rocket science. This is just simply but profoundly about proximity to Christ. That's it. Uh, there's things popping in my head. I don't know how long I've got. But I remember being in, a, in the bottom of a river at the Walhalla there with Dad. We were hunting deer. Apologies for people that don't like hunting. I was very young. It's like, what am I going to do? We were hunting deer. We were out in the bush. It was late at night. The fire was crackling away, very low, and there's koalas. 
growling. I'd never heard them before. Hey, what is this thing? If you've never heard a growl of a koala, like I'm freaking out. I am freaking out. We're just lying on stones. There's a little fire. But I was close enough uh, to Dad to catch sight of Dad. And his eyes just opened up. He says, all right, son, it's not to worry about. It's just koala. I've never forgotten it because it was the proximity to Dad. I was close enough I could see him. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is like, is this a parable? I don't know. I was close enough I could see him. Come to me, all who are scared of growling koalas. <laughs> so I will give you rest. You understand? I'm just making light heart of a proper thing, though, for many people. I, I appreciate that. But this proximity, coming close enough just to catch sight, you say, well, hang on, I've been here like I'm me and Jesus. You know, I'm a Christian. I've been following Jesus. Well, so what? It, it's pretty easy to get far enough away from the campfire so you lose sight of, sight of him, isn't it? This is all I'm saying. And the invitation this morning is to maybe not come for the first time. Maybe there is somebody here that for you it's like, whoa, I've actually never drawn the, sort of drawn the dots here that Jesus died for me as an expression of his love for me, that God would wash my feet like that. My gosh, what the heck is going on? I've never... You want to follow him? I want to follow a God like that. I want to be like Lindsay's friend. I just want to follow a God like that. Maybe this, well, then you come to Jesus. You figure out some way. Talk to somebody. Say, hey, I just want to, you know, figure out some way about following Jesus. This invitation might be for you. Come to me for the first time. But for the rest of us, let's just put an extra word. Come back to me. Draw a little closer. Just enough. Just so you can catch sight of that Jesus that died for you. That is a powerful God and with that strong arm wants to gather you and carry you close to his heart. That, my friends, is the thing that helps you wake up in the morning and feel worthwhile as a person. That's it. Let me pray. That's all I got. I'm done. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we can't thank you enough. Lord, you do all sorts of things in our lives, but honestly, Lord, you don't even need to do one more thing after dying on the cross. That was it. That's enough. Because in that one act, you demonstrated you defeated death, you defeated sin, that you are a powerful God. But in that one act also, you showed that we are people of worth. You were prepared to die for us. So thank you for your invitation to come or to come back. Lord, we want to come back to you. Help us, give us the courage to do that. Amen.